We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. kind of mythical powers does a sun devil have? we got to consider that. It's embarrassing, but we are who we are. We're not a very good team, but we're 3-1 and one somehow. And we got all the voters fooled, thinking we're pretty good. Jaworski Lane at 275 pounds showed a heck of a lot of athletic ability. Welcome to a conference championship weekend preview edition of the Road to Wire College Football Podcast, the Mike Teal of College Football Podcast. Nick Whalen joined, as always, by Road to Wire head honcho of college football content, John McKechnie, who is listed on my StreamYard screen right now as Cade McNown. I got to admit, John, I, I, I kind of consider myself a maestro of uh, you know alma maters when it comes to, to football and basketball, especially. I don't know where Cade McNown went to college. You know that yeah, this is this is deeper back that, than we usually go. You know, usually our sweet spot is anywhere from like when we were in sixth grade uh, onward. This was this was way before then. This was Kate McNown is like the first person I remember being like a big draft bust. Um, and specifically, I just remember mostly there was like a very famous picture of him at UCLA. I remember you used to get Sports Illustrated when they used to print that thing and I've people used that, to yeah. read it. Yeah. Uh, there was a great picture of him, uh, shall we say, losing his lunch. And that that that, uh, that picture has stuck with me uh, to the point where I even wanted to to have that as my display name on StreamYard 20 years, sure. 20 plus years uh, af- after the fact. It, it's, a, it's a lasting image for me. It's an important image. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to pay some reverence to him, even though UCLA is not playing this weekend. You know, I'm surprised a photo like that would make it to print. I don't know if they would do that anymore you know especially with like the potential link to like a concussion or something like that i, I just don't yeah. know that in in the year of our lord 2021 i don't i don't know if someone is losing their lunch in print these days but you know what uh, that then there, there's something to be said for for the slapstick humor that was that was appropriately appreciated in, in the late 90s in, including a college guy uh ralphing uh on the field and, and having it be be caught um in sterling uh refinement I'll have to have our producer uh, bleep your use of the R word there, Ralphing. I, I, <laughs> Ralphing is not said very often in Wisconsin. I don't know if that's like a Southern thing or a, a Maryland thing. Uh, I, Maryland I hear it every thing. now and then. I know what it means. I don't. I, have, I grew up with nobody who ever used the word Ralphing. <laughs> I, I, I had like a buddy in high school that like, yeah, his um, that was his go-to word for it. And if, if someone did lose their lunch at a party or something uh, unrelated to anything, uh, yeah, it, it yeah, the, this one kid eventually like got the full nickname. Like he just got called Ralph for like the rest of high school <laughs> for that reason. His name yeah, is not Ralph. Curious about a Ralphing to get the nickname Ralph. Yeah, he 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 built himself quite the reputation. Oh man! All right. Um. So first things first. I, I want to spend the next probably fifteen to twenty minutes talking about our Spotify Wrapped for the year twenty twenty one. Uh, no, just kidding. I actually have no interest <laughs> whatsoever in, in hearing about anybody's Spotify Wrapped. Uh, although you and I did cover that. Uh, with some input from our buddy Chris Owen uh, on Twitter yesterday. Shout out yes. to Godsmack for making it into the top 100 uh, for both of us. But yeah, um, I, I want to start with some of the coaching carousel madness that continues to transpire this week. And we went pretty deep on the Lincoln Riley to USC situation on Monday uh, in our kind of weekend recap episode. And about two hours after we posted that, 
all of a sudden we get news that Brian Kelly is going to LSU. So we haven't had a chance really to break that down. Uh, obviously, it's been covered pretty extensively, um, you know, elsewhere on the internet and another podcast. So I, I don't think we're going to be breaking any news here, but uh, we do have news, you know, over the last 24 hours or so that defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman set to take over at LSU. It, it kind of felt like right after Brian Kelly, uh, I, I, we're being generous by using the word announced, uh, Brian Kelly <laughs> kind of scampered down to LSU uh, that instantly everybody's like, all right, it's either Urban Meyer is leaving the Jags for Notre Dame. I was crossing my fingers for that scenario. That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, or, you know, the, the more likely scenario was that Luke Fickle finishes things up. If Notre Dame is willing to wait, you know, that's the obvious move. Luke Fickle hired from Cincinnati to Notre Dame, an obvious, you know, one step to another. And, you know, now it looks like Notre Dame wasn't willing to wait. Exactly. So, so yeah, the Monday w- was nuts because like you said, uh, we finished recording, uh, check Twitter, Brian Kelly's like the number one trend and, you know, we're off and, uh, you know, he, he's caught plenty of flack deserved for the most part uh, throughout the week for, for the, the way in which he left. But the, the way I feel about breakups in general uh, in life or in college football is like, there's no great way to do I don't know what Brian Kelly's supposed to do like by the time that he's down in Baton Rouge accepting the job it's getting leaked out that he's taking it like before he even gets on the plane to go back to South Bend like his players know so it's just like it's a the way that information spreads so quickly now it it was kind of inevitable that that this would happen I I understand that the players being upset and they're and they're not being a whole lot of of warmth in in that Tuesday 7 a.m uh hey I'm 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 rolling out meeting but uh, I, I think a lot of it is a little bit of a function of the public just not really liking Brian Kelly, and that's fine. I don't think he's the most likable guy in the world. So piling on him, I'm not. I'm not going to like you know throw my hands up and say, oh, he doesn't deserve any of this. But uh, maybe it's a little bit overwrought. But um, I, I guess we'll, we'll talk about Notre Dame first. They were in a tricky position. I was talking to a buddy of mine, big Notre Dame guy. Um, on Monday, I was like, it's got to be fickle, right? Um, and he was like, well, Freeman has been the, – the understanding that I have is that Freeman kind of a handshake deal to to be that that coach in waiting at Notre Dame. But I, I don't think that the accelerated timeline was expected. I, I think that this was something where, where Notre Dame fans felt that Kelly would be there till probably like the middle part of this decade and, and then step away and Freeman w- would take over. Um, I don't think that anyone expected it to be this quickly. You know, Freeman just t- just got that job um, this past offseason. But when you have the, this tricky line that you're walking, uh, there, there's so much intrigue because, you know, you're going after a guy like Luke Fickle potentially, but his team is ranked in the playoff. You lost to that team, um, but you're still in playoff contention, but you just lost your coach. Like, how do you juggle all of those factors and at a certain point, maybe they got it. Maybe they kicked the tires on, on Fickle, or maybe they just kind of had to had to make the snap call and be like, "We don't have a lot of time here. There's still a chance, a snowball's chance in hell, at the very least, that that we're going to be able to get into the playoff." Continuity w- would certainly help us. And the committee talked about that on, on Tuesday. You know, we we factor in coaching changes, blah blah blah. They just kind of like farted that out there. But um, either way. I think Freeman stands as a good hire for Notre Dame. If he was going to be the the coach in waiting eventually anyway, like why not now? And it, you know, it feels like this, this breathes some, some life in, into Notre Dame even a little bit more. And they, they've done really well this season, I think. Um, so he's there. You got Tommy Reese staying and doing the, the classic uh, Wolf of Wall Street. I'm not leaving uh, tweet. Uh, no matter how many times people do that one, I always love it. I, it just always it hasn't works gotten old at all. Yeah, it's crazy how that one like has such a good shelf life. But either way, I think that this, regardless of whether Notre Dame ends up making the playoffs, I think Notre Dame fans have to be happy with the way this week unfolded. I think a lot of them were, were kind of tired of Brian Kelly. I think a lot of them knew that Freeman could be that next guy. I think that there might be a little bit of a sting that it's not fickle. But if Freeman was going to be the guy eventually or you had to make that choice and ultimately lose Freeman by, by bringing in Fickle, I think all told, this worked out really well for Notre Dame. Yeah, and you're hiring a 35-year-old. Um, so, you know, ostensibly this is someone, not, not that Luke Fickle is a whole lot older, but, you know, this is someone who you view as, if things go right through these first few years, you know, maybe a you know, long, long-term uh, type of fit at Notre Dame. And, you know, you read that the players really wanted 
uh, Freeman to, to get this job. And I think that maybe had something to do with it, but obviously you have to act fast, you know? And I think the concern is that if, if Luke Fickle, you know, wins this weekend and things break right for Cincinnati, you know, you maybe are waiting until all the way to the end of the college football playoff, which as we know, you know, there's always that long break uh, between this weekend and, and when the playoff starts. And, you know, I mean, certainly coaches have accepted jobs and, you know, coached through that. And it's, it can kind of be a distraction. I don't know if Luke Fickle maybe indicated that he didn't want to do that, but uh, essentially Notre Dame, I think, just did not want to take that risk of, um, you know, losing out on their own guy in-house over these next few weeks. And I think there's there's kind of a general sense of optimism, right? It doesn't it doesn't feel like there's some sort of letdown that they didn't get a bigger name guy. No, I think, again, I, I really do feel like this worked out a kind of best case scenario for, for Notre Dame, especially considering the fact that, um, playing that game of chicken, uh, waiting the, the full month, putting Cincinnati in, in, in Fickle in that awkward spot where, you know, got, you know the way the, the news cycles work, the the festering kind of underlying, oh, Fickle's going to be coaching in the playoff, but, it, you know, he's his, you know, half of his heart is, is in South Bend right now. He's, he's not really focused. Uh, you know, that, that would have just that would have just festered over, over the course of the month, because like you said, this is such a long layoff from, from conference championship weekend until the college football playoff on new year's Eve. So this was something where I think ultimately just expediting this process and going with, with what you had in house already when he was, you know, a promising up and coming type of guy to begin with, this really sets up nicely for Notre Dame. It does make me wonder because it, it was one of the few, I feel like fickle for among those hot names, there aren't that many landing spots that, that I think a lot of people project them to. There, there aren't that many huge jobs in the Midwest that are going to be opening anytime soon. Ryan Day is obviously doing an awesome job at Ohio State. Harbaugh safe at Michigan, of course, after this past week. Mel Tucker going to be at Michigan State until they run out of money, it seems like. So, you know, with Notre Dame off the table, it, it does kind of reset the fickle watch as far as where he goes after Cincinnati because there's been so much made of him just being like the the consummate Midwest guy Mm -hmm. yeah it might be another year of waiting for fickle and and we'll see what goes on there obviously Cincinnati gonna do whatever they can to keep him but but you're right there's not really another obvious pivot uh right now with the Notre Dame job you know seemingly going to Freeman um let's talk about Brian Kelly's fit at LSU uh, I, I am not optimistic about this. I mean, at the same time, he is the winningest coach in Notre Dame history. I think from a pure coaching perspective, there's a pretty high floor here. Like, I, I don't see this turning out to be a complete disaster where all of a sudden LSU is going like two and nine in a couple of years. Like, I, I think he's a good enough coach and a good enough, you know, like program CEO type of guy, even though he could be a little bit abrasive or, or a mm-hmm. lot of bit abrasive. Um, but I, I do think it's a, it's a relatively safe hire, but I mean, at the same time, like the everything we know about Brian Kelly versus everything we know about the LSU program, like it, it just seems like a really, really odd match to me. So I, I had the the privilege of uh, every Tuesday I, I go on the radio with, with uh, the sports company down in Ruston, Louisiana. So that, that's some, some boots on the ground, folks. And, and, you know, they picked my brain about it on Tuesday and I, I picked their brain about it. And, and I think the big kind of knee jerk reaction that that anyone would have to this is like, you know, Brian Kelly, a Notre Dame man going to LSU, that, that is just on its surface a strange cultural fit. There, there's no way around it. And I, I think that LSU, like that, the, there's cultural fit of like being in the South. And then like LSU, I feel like is a job that like takes it to another level. And, and they're obviously coming off of moving away from the guy who was the greatest cultural fit that, that LSU possibly could have had in Coach Ed Orgeron, but it didn't work out. And then you look at the two coaches that preceded him are Midwest guys. I mean, Saban came down uh, from Michigan State and Les Miles, famously a Michigan man. So, uh, you know, there's chances that that uh, the carpetbagging Northerners can actually have success uh, down in the South and down, down in Louisiana. You, you hope that it doesn't end the same way that like Joe Moorhead's run at, at Miss State did. I, I don't think it will. I think that, you know, the, the resumes simply aren't comparable from where Moorhead was coming from in his career versus Kelly being the, the winningest coach at Notre Dame. So w- once you get beyond that, you do kind of wonder, I, there are things at LSU from a recruiting angle that I think could set this up really nicely. As long as Kelly is able to, to do this, this sets up well because Notre Dame, there are hurdles to getting guys 
to go to Notre Dame, you got to have that full buy-in. You got to have the the academics up to a certain standard that, that's a little bit tougher. I'm not even bagging on LSU. It's just Notre Dame. It, it's it's hard to pull some of these guys, and it's also a little bit of a tougher sell to to get a kid to South Bend. You know, he Kelly did well with guys in Vegas and, and stuff like that, getting getting some West Coast guys to to buy in and, and come to South Bend, Indiana. I think that this could just turn on, uh, you know, an, another faucet as far as his recruiting chops go. And, you know, if he's able to to build that or can maintain the wall that LSU tends to have in the state of Louisiana, where it's re- you're, you're up against it in terms of pulling a, a blue chip type of talent away from the state, then, you know, that we could have these really, really talented teams. I'm excited or I'm not, not excited. I'm, I'm interested to see. Uh, who his coordinator hires are going to be because obviously Reese and Freeman staying back in South Bend. So as long as he gets those hires right, this could, you know, be a a good hire for for LSU, despite the the kind of weird aesthetics of it. Yeah. I I mean, it's just so easy to picture like Brian Kelly, like awkwardly entering the home of a recruit from like, you know, the, the, the the down fingers of Louisiana in the, in the deep South. And it's like, I just don't know how this guy's going to handle this. And and he'll probably do a lot better than all the jokes on Twitter the last week have, have implied. Uh, but it, it's definitely going to be a, a like, like you mentioned with coach O it's a complete opposite direction. Right. And the coach O thing worked really well for one year and really badly for another year. Um, and it's, it, you know, kind of comes out neutral overall. I, I wonder if that was an intentional decision by LSU to, to go in that opposite direction and, and go with a guy who, you know, it, you know, Coach O was such a culture fit, and Brian Kelly on the outside is, is such a non-culture fit. I do wonder if that was an intentional move to to kind of try to separate themselves a little bit from how the Coach O era ended. Yeah, I, that that definitely would make sense, and I, I think that there are a lot of signs that that point to that maybe factoring into this process. And you know, again, neither of us are huge Brian Kelly guys. I don't know a single huge Brian Kelly guy, but you can't really argue with the results that that he's had at Notre Dame and, and LSU. Um, again, the, the recruiting barriers there uh, don't exist the same way they, they do um, in, in South Bend. So I think that this could work out extremely well. Um, we'll see how it goes. I, I'm, I think overall, I, I give LSU like a B plus a minus for, for this one. And, and I think um, Notre Dame probably deserves an a minus, but that there's a little bit more un- unknown when it, when it comes to Freeman, but when you're betting on a guy who's been, hot defensive coordinator for years and he, he's 35 he, he's uh really personable um gonna gonna be able to connect with the players in, in a certain way that, that maybe kelly wasn't then you know the, i think this this should set up well for, for both programs so i think it, it ended up when the dust settles it, it ends up being a win-win for both mm-hmm. yeah i mean obviously a lot of momentum for notre dame these last few years you don't really want to lose that I and mean, keeping the higher in-house uh, at least uh, on paper should should help accomplish that uh let's turn to the games this weekend we have a fantastic uh, conference championship weekend ahead of us. And I mean, not every game has, has like, you know, football or uh, college football playoff implications, but more than normal, it feels like do, you know, I mean, you have Baylor, Oklahoma state, that there are, there are routes that either of these teams could potentially end up in the playoff, obviously Georgia, Alabama, massive implications, Houston, Cincinnati, uh, huge implications there for one of those teams, Michigan, Iowa, um, I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot going on and, and you could kind of scheme out so many different ways that these games play out. And all of a sudden teams like Notre Dame are, are very much in the mix to make the playoff, but we'll start on Friday night uh, with two teams that are, are likely still on the outside looking in. I mean, I, I don't know if Oregon would need an insane amount of help to somehow end up in the playoff, but they, they sit at 10 and two, uh, of course, lost to Utah who they will face in Vegas on Friday night. Uh, they lost to Utah 38 to seven, two weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, of course, Utah, a two and a half point favorite in this game, which I think makes sense. Although, you know, based on the beatdown that Utah put on Oregon two weeks ago, I, would, I wouldn't be shocked if this number was a little bit higher. Yeah, I mean, it, that that would make sense, get, given uh, how thorough a dismantling that. I mean, like it wasn't just that Utah put a put a big number on the board. It was that Oregon simply couldn't do anything on offense. And of course, their defense got completely kind of just bullied around, which is how they had. Uh, kind of gotten to that point in the season, but we we had the smell out uh, for for that uh, Utah upset a few weeks ago in Salt Lake City. I'm going to flip flop here. I think Oregon wins. Uh, I think that uh, that this is the second time that that they match up in, in as many weeks. I think Oregon still on balance, the more talented roster. They obviously have the bad taste in their mouth after 
that game a couple weeks back, neutral site, so they don't have quite the, the hostile environment that, to, that they'll be walking into. Um, is Utah, are Utah people afraid of Las Vegas? No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I just think that Oregon should be able to get to get it done here. I think this is going to be a really, really close game. SP Plus ha, has Utah winning this one by, by less than a, a full point as far as it, its its projected margin is concerned. So that that goes to show you um, how even that this matchup is. That they, they play very similar styles, don't ask their quarterbacks to do a lot, um, lean on the run game and good defense. But I'm just going to kind of defer to the old adage about it, how difficult it is to beat a team twice, especially in a two-week span. And I do think that Oregon, on balance, is a more talented team. So I'm going to side with Oregon here. I like it. Very tough to beat a team twice. I've heard a lot of people say that. I mean, who knows how true it actually is, but it seems <laughs> like it'd be true. And, uh, you know, we don't have a whole lot else to go on here uh, other than the result, you know, two weeks ago. And it, I, I don't think Utah stomps them again. I think that would be probably the most surprising result if yeah. it's another resounding victory for Utah. And and we should know there's not nothing on the line here. I mean, again, the chances of, of either of these teams having a true case for the playoff is basically zero, but the winner likely goes to the Rose Bowl, um, which still means something, even in the playoff era, especially for teams that, that aren't always there. Um, so still a decent amount of meaning in that game on Friday night. Saturday morning, we kick things off in a hurry. 11 a.m. Central, 12 Eastern, we get the Big 12 championship game, Baylor and Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, a five-and-a-half-point favorite in this one. I, there's still a path for Baylor to get into the playoff. There's definitely a path for Oklahoma State to get into the playoff. Um, my question, John, is, is if Oklahoma State wins, if Cincinnati wins, if Michigan wins, and if Georgia wins, does that put Oklahoma State in very solidly as the fourth team, or do we get an argument of, you know, two loss Alabama versus one loss Oklahoma State or even undefeated Cincinnati. I think it would be a joke for two two loss Alabama to get in over one loss conference champion Oklahoma State. And you know, th this isn't uh, through through red and black uh, glasses. This is just a, a legitimate resume consideration. I think Oklahoma State's resume is extremely impressive. Their their win over Oklahoma last week um, really really strong. Uh, they, they've obviously. Uh, played Baylor earlier this season. I, I think that Oklahoma State would be a deserving, uh, you know, number three or number four, however, that the committee would want to to seed that out in that particular um, circumstance or in that if, if things were to play out that exact way. I, I just don't think that – I know a lot has been made of Alabama. What if they lose close to Georgia? I don't know if they built that – or if they deserve to have built that same cachet where – uh, that they, they do something that no other playoff team ha has done yet and, and lose two games and still get in. Like, I don't think that they've really passed the eye test to that extent. I mean, when, when's the last time that they had a truly dominant win over, over an SEC team that, that really kind of made the statement? I, I think it, you have to go all the way back to the Ole Miss game because, you know, you struggle against Arkansas, you struggle against Auburn. You kind of need a miracle for, for that for, to avoid that second loss on the Plains struggle against a bad LSU team. You lose to A&M that also lost to, to LSU. I just don't, I don't think it's there if Alabama loses again, even if it is close. So I, I think that if Oklahoma state takes care of business and Georgia wins, then Oklahoma state's in. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I don't even know if it matters how Alabama loses. If that's the scenario, you know, if they lose 33 to 30 or 38 to seven, I think two losses, you know, with one of those coming to AM and then one coming to Georgia, they're not bad losses, obviously, but two losses, even though it's Alabama, even though, you know, the committee, I wouldn't say it showed bias, but it has, has certainly uh, given the, the Crimson Tide the benefit of the doubt in mm -hmm. years past. I, I don't see that happening, you know, especially if it's a convincing win for Oklahoma State. And, you know, I mean, it, I think Oklahoma State, it's not like this is going to be their only ranked win. You know, like the, the, the resume isn't like extremely impressive but it's still like a b b plus resume i don't know i i think mm -hmm. some people are talking about oklahoma state like it's a cincinnati situation and they only have like one good win um i, I think they would be pretty safely in if, if they're able to pull this off yeah i think so too uh again bama is the is the the looming factor there if if georgia is to lose to alabama i imagine they both get in um at, at which yep. point um that then and then i i'm we'll get to it of course but i, I think michigan wins uh, this weekend as well. So then it becomes the debate of theoretically an undefeated Cincinnati versus a one loss big 12 champ. 
it seems like the committee has positioned itself to, to just lean Cincinnati in that particular case. Um, but I, I think if Georgia is to beat Alabama, Oklahoma State takes care of business, that, that's it. I, I don't see Alabama with two losses. It'd be a joke it, for, for a two, two loss team to, to be left or to get in over a one loss conference champ. If you're the committee, I think you're rooting hard for Georgia to just keep this thing rolling. Make right? I think that makes yeah. your that makes your job so much easier. I mean, it's an impossible choice. Um, I would you feel that strongly about it? Like, let's say Oklahoma State and Cincinnati both win. You know, they both look fine. Uh, Alabama beats Georgia. Like, if you had to choose between those two, like, do you have a lean even right now? I think I think it's probably Cincinnati. I think you re- reward the undefeated team, undefeated conference champ, even though they're not Power Five. Uh, they have. A, a better top win than Oklahoma State would would have um, at, at this juncture. I, I I would I would put Cincinnati at four in, in that particular case. If if the two SEC teams in Michigan are getting in, then then I think Oklahoma State's in trouble. It's so tough. I mean, Oklahoma State would have two wins over Baylor. They would have beaten Oklahoma, um, but that's basically it. You know, and, and you have some relatively unimpressive uh, non-con wins early on. You know, that didn't exactly bolster that resume, but you know, that was also three months ago and, and, you know, recency bias does tend to be a factor. I I think, I think picking Cincinnati is the path of less resistance in that scenario. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think there are certainly people in Stillwater who would be very upset if, if the Cowboys are left out in favor of Cincinnati, but I I feel like nationally it would be a bigger story, a much bigger story if Cincinnati was passed over than if Oklahoma state was passed over. I think so too. And I think Cincinnati has, you know, the, the committee has positioned itself in a way to make it a, extremely difficult for a group of five team to get in. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Cincinnati will, would have done basically everything to to jump through those hoops. I mean, right. it, dating back to last season and being great, um, taking Georgia to the last second in, in the Peach Bowl on, in a New Year New Year's Six Bowl game and then running the table this year. Like what more can can they do, yeah. especially if the, if they haven't said directly that group of five teams can't get in? Right. And you've, you've said it before on this pod that you need a kind of a two year run up. You know, you can't just come out of nowhere because you're, you're starting in too big of a hole. And Cincinnati got this train rolling last year and, and they've rolled over perfectly. You know, there's not much more uh, that you could ask the Bearcats to do. And that includes beating, you know, a top 25 team in Houston. It's not like they're playing some six and six team for the AAC title. I mean, this is a, a legitimate opponent in Houston. Yeah. Houston, Houston, I think is one 11 straight. Like they're, they're hot. And they're, yeah. they're good, too. I mean, that, that's actually going to be a very good game. I, I know that it's going up against uh, the SEC championship game, but keep an eye on that one. I feel like that, that's going to be um, a worthy uh, second TV game to be having on there because Houston's no joke. And they, they're they they're red hot right now. If they're healthy, I think they'll give Cincinnati a test. But I do like Cincinnati to win that one. Yeah, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people picking against Cincinnati or even rooting against Cincinnati. You know, Unless you're an Oklahoma State fan or, or maybe yeah. a Notre Dame fan. Um, like who in their right mind doesn't want to see Cincinnati pull this thing off. Exactly. Dude. I like it. That what a fun story that they, they've been awesome for a couple of years, like we've said. And, and, uh, I think they've, they've earned it. You know, this is a, this is a, a team by group of five standards. It's well known by, by the public. I mean, you got sauce Gardner, you got, uh, Desmond Ritter, you got Jerome Ford. Like you kind of, by at least like serious college football fans, uh, but if you're putting those parameters on there, like the kind of household names, like the, those are those are dudes that you've known for a while and, and root for. It's it's not hard to root for the Cincinnati team. No, not at all. I mean, it, it does kind of have that. It harkens back to like the 2000, you know, seven, 2008, like Boise State type yeah. of team. And, and that team felt like maybe even more of a Cinderella just because of how they played. Um, like they were like noticeably undersized <laughs> compared to the like power <laughs> five teams that they would play. And, and Cincinnati, I think, like feels a little more. Uh, legitimate than that Boise State team, but obviously Boise State went and beat Oklahoma, so they were they were plenty legit themselves. Um, let's let's go back to Baylor Oklahoma State. The Oklahoma State five and a half point favorites in this one. Do you do you do you have a you know, kind of a lean on how you see this one playing out? So if, if Baylor's going to have a chance in this one, um, they first off they need Gary Bohannon back there. I don't I don't give them a whole lot of a chance um, if Sharpens back there um, or Blake Shapen. I'm sorry. Um, instead of Gary Bohannon. Bohannon, of course, missed last week's game, and they, and they kind of had to squeak it out against Texas Tech. So Bohannon's health is a huge factor in this game. Um, I think that Oklahoma State, despite like 
you know, the, the proverbial like letdown spot. I don't think that happens in, in a conference championship game, especially with what's on the line for them. So even though they, they just uh, beat Oklahoma, uh, I think they're going to be laser focused this week. They haven't had as strong of a run game of late as, as they did earlier in the year. I don't know if there's something up with Jalen Warren He's still playing, but he's not as effective as he was earlier this season. So I, I just think that this comes down to Oklahoma State's defense just kind of choking out Baylor, keeping this low scoring. I mean, we, how often do we see a Big 12 title game uh, have a total of just or of under 50, let alone under 47, like what we're seeing right now? So this is expected to be a defensive battle. I think Oklahoma State wins this one kind of ugly, but convincingly at the same time, like the scoreboard would say it's ugly. But anyone who watched the game would, would say that Oklahoma State was in control throughout. So I'm, I'm seeing something like Oklahoma State 24, Baylor uh, 13, something like that. Again, in saying that, we're talking about a Big 12 game like that. And then a Big 12 game, including these two teams, which have been like at the forefront of playing no defense <laughs> for the last. Like Baylor especially is the team that I always just assume is like, oh, Bryce Petty has eight touchdowns through three quarters. Again, here we go. Um, <laughs> what, what's going on with Gary Bohannon? by the way, who I think is technically kind of questionable heading into this one. So he, he warmed up last week, but, but did not play. Were they saving him or was he legitimately unable to go? That, that I guess is the question that we'll never get the answer to. This is college football. Like they, they don't have to tell us anything about injuries, but um, I'm guessing that he's going to be able to go. I'm guessing that he's not going to be hundred percent though. I believe he's dealing with a hamstring. That's what I'm seeing on this. Some like niche website, rotowire.com. Uh, that, that covers a lot of this injury news. I would recommend uh, checking that out. Uh, let's move to the afternoon. We, we mentioned Houston, Cincinnati. I think we we both kind of are on the same page as far as how we feel that one will play out. But George Bama is going to have the attention. And I, I know the SEC title game is always in the afternoon window. I definitely wish it was the nightcap. Um, you know, Michigan Iowa will be fun. Pitt Wake will be fun. But this is the game I'm most excited for. And the dogs are are almost touchdown favorites, six and a half points. Uh, which feels about right. Obviously, Alabama has not been super impressive. Major questions about how that offensive line will hold up against, you know, I, I think people are starting to contextualize, you know, this Georgia defense, just how good it is. But, you know, I, I think in the same way that we kind of looked back after LSU ran through everybody in the college football playoff and, and people started to question, like, is this one of, one of if not the most talented offenses we've ever seen? I, I think people are going to start, you know, lumping Georgia's defense into that conversation if they haven't already. And, you know, if they beat Alabama handily in this one, if they win by two or three touchdowns, if they hold Alabama to something like 14 points, um, I mean, that that would just be yet another feather in the cap for the dogs. And I, I can tell by the way you've been talking these last couple of weeks, I, I think you feel pretty confident about this, right? And and you, you probably should. I do. I do. And uh, first of all, I think it's a matter of uh, public uh, health and safety uh, here in, in Atlanta that this game is played. Um, in the afternoon, I, I think if you made these these fans wait until nighttime, it would just wouldn't go well for the entire city of Atlanta. Um, but when it, when it comes to to this game, yeah, I'm I'm concerned by how confident I am in this Georgia team. Yeah, uh, I uh, I got asked on the radio earlier this week. Uh, you know, have you ever felt even mildly good about playing Alabama? And the answer is like a hard no. I mean, you know, I thought. Had a puncher's chance in the SEC championship in 2012. I thought they, they might get uh, revenge in 2018 after the way the 17 game ended. Uh, when they played in 2015, uh, uh, that was just kind of like the, the beginning of the end for the Mark Richt era. I didn't really know how I felt about that one, but it, you know, it was pretty clear early on that, that Bama was just far more dominant. And I, I don't really consider last year's game much of anything, ironically, because Stetson Bennett was starting. Um, but yeah, I think like you, like you said in the preamble there, this this Georgia defense is just crazy, and and I think we're we're just starting to see week after week the way that they choke teams out. That like their their points differential is like almost a full four hundred over over the course of the entire season. They've given up less than a hundred points on the entire year. Um, so much of the of their game time has been played in, in garbage time, just because that they're up by so much, and yet they still don't let people score. It's it's just a, a crazy junkyard unit that that's inc incredibly deep, incredibly talented, and, and incredibly well coached. And I think that we run into a situation this year where Alabama, unlike last year, where they had one of the best offensive lines maybe ever in college football, just unbelievably talented group uh, that played together so well, gave Mac Jones all the time in the world that he wanted. That's not the case this year. Like we we saw 
Arkansas, or I'm sorry, Auburn cave in that that defense or offensive interior for Alabama. We saw AM win on the strength of its ability to just uh, knock Bryce Bryce Young around a little bit, and then that you know they, they had to answer the bell in their own right. I don't think Georgia's going to keep Bama down for all four quarters. I think that last drive uh, of the of regulation in the Iron Bowl is, is proof that that you can you can be taking it to Bama's offense for it for 58 minutes and they still have the talent to put a scoring drive together. So um, I think in, in the end, Georgia's defense is going to win more often than it's not. But I, I think that also it's going to have to find a way to effectively defend Bryce Young, putting it in the air upwards of 40 times, because I don't think that Alabama is going to run the ball at all. And whether that means that Georgia is just bringing um, a ton of pressure off the edge and just kind of blitzing with impunity whether that rattles Bryce Young or not, we'll have to see. Uh, he's going to get knocked around a lot, though. I, I do feel, um, you know, if, if you're Georgia, you you almost want Alabama to, to have a slightly healthier run game uh, because it, having to defend that much Bryce Young, I think, is, is going to be exhausting over the course of 60 minutes. And then on Georgia's offensive side, I st- you know, we're, we're into December, and I still don't really know what to make of this offense. I still don't know what to make of Stetson Bennett. Uh, what, one thing I, I will point out is – there have been so many times this year where he's uh, bailed on a play uh, and ran for it and gotten crushed from behind, but he's held onto the ball pretty much every single time. He, fumbles haven't been an issue for him. I do wonder if like that that maybe that regresses to a norm here and, and, and Bennett does have a killer turnover, but um, if Georgia is able to do its part on defense and do its part in not turning the ball over to Alabama, and they, they obviously have to stop Will Anderson, of course, um, as well, then I think Georgia wins this one rather comfortably. But if, if those conditions aren't met, then we got a, a serious ball game on our hands and one that I think Alabama could win. Yeah, I mean, Alabama could always win this game. And it's actually crazy that you're, you know, you and, and Georgia Nation is rightfully this confident because the talent gap is is not as big as like the spread would imply. You know, I mean, even just like comparing Georgia last year to where you are now, is, is crazy. And it's not like Alabama's played poorly. That That's not even really a factor in this. It's like Georgia has been that good. Georgia has earned being a touchdown favorite over Alabama in the SEC title game. And, and what's still been a really good year for Alabama that's lost one game in, in a close one against Texas A&M. I mean, it, it just speaks to how dominant uh, the dogs have been. But I, I think you're spot on in terms of how this game script plays out for Alabama. I, I think you you almost are under like an obligation to try to establish the run I think, you know, we, we probably see like the first snap of the game is like a two yard loss where the, the running back is just hit like three yards behind the line. Um, and then they could very quickly abandon that. And yeah, I, I think your, your fear, if you're a Georgia supporter here is this turns into like kind of what we saw against Auburn, you know, from Alabama or, or even A&M, Tennessee, Arkansas, Bryce Young had 40 plus attempts in all of those games. And when you have the receiving talent that they do, it's like, you know, if you're drawing pass interferences, if you let up a couple long ones, you know, all of a sudden the game is, is maybe a little bit closer than it ultimately should be based on, you know, the gap between these teams. Yeah. Uh, I'm very interested to see be, because as good as Georgia's defense has been, um, I, I do feel like they haven't faced an offense this good or even really all that close. And and I think the closest one would be Tennessee and Tennessee moved the ball uh, on Georgia. And obviously that game was in Knoxville, Tennessee, super up for that game, everything like that. But um, you know, I do wonder what Alabama, and Bill O'Brien, I, I'm, I don't mean this to, to be like, oh, Bill, I'm terrified of what Bill O'Brien's going to going to scheme up here. But, you know, what does he take away from from how Tennessee was successful and, and apply it here? Because they, there's clearly something that they were doing that was that was bothering Georgia, although at the same time, Bama is not a tempo team and Tennessee runs warp speed. So, so uh, would they completely change their offensive philosophy or would they be able to uh, in, in the span of one week? It, that's a, that's a question to consider. I, I don't know if they'd be able to to pull it off one to one, but yeah, maybe they do try to run a little bit of tempo here and, and get Georgia on their heels early in the game. And if Georgia is able to survive that script, it, how does the rest of the game go? I tell you what, it's got to feel nice going into this game, which is one of the biggest games in in Georgia history, certainly in recent Georgia history. Knowing that even if there's some disaster scenario when you lose you're still going to go to the college football playoff. Like you're sitting in a great spot this weekend. Yeah. hundred percent. So, so yeah, there, there's a little bit less pressure. Obviously it gets ratcheted up. If you do lose that game, then you, you know, who do you draw in the, in the first round of the playoff and, and so on. I would just prefer to, to 
get this over with. Uh, I'm so, as a Georgia fan, I've I've endured so much emotional damage from from these yep. people. I can't do it anymore. They, this needs to happen this weekend. That, that's sorry. exactly like, how I felt. Not even Wisconsin being professional too. about it. I'm just like, look, man, <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's hard to even get excited for games. It's just like nerves and just like I just want this to be over. I don't even sometimes I don't even care what the result is. I just want to deal with it. Um, but yeah, we've, we've both been put through the ringer. Uh, that is for certain this last Amen. decade. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll do picks at the end, but I, I think we'll both be siding with Georgia. I, I haven't quite decided yet if I, I think they'll cover this one. Uh, but again, we'll get that to the end. Michigan and Iowa in the big 12 or excuse me, big 12, the big 10 title game in Indianapolis. This should have been Michigan, Wisconsin setting up yep. what would be a really fun game to watch. Wisconsin would probably lose again, uh, but still would have been fun. Um, Iowa comes into this now as 11 point dogs. Uh, and it's not like Iowa can't put up a fight. I, I think Iowa and Wisconsin, you know, probably line up as pretty similar opponents, uh, if you're Michigan, but I, I, the one thing for, for the Wolverines is you, you don't have that same luxury as Georgia. Like you still need to win this game. I, I guess there are other scenarios where, you know, other teams could lose and you could still maybe back your way in, but winning this game is paramount. And, and for Michigan, it's all about just avoiding a letdown after a you know, massively emotional win last week. Right. So, so with that in mind, like I could see Michigan starting this one slow. Um, but, but, you know, as we've talked about over the course of this season, when it comes to Iowa, they need to turn you over to, in order to, to really make you uncomfortable because it, they're not really going to beat you straight up. Like as long as you aren't making these colossal mistakes that, that flip the field or, or, you know, result in a touchdown, that type of thing. Um, then I think that, this this just straight up is a is a much better Michigan team that, than it is for Iowa and and you know something that's a, a level of concern for Iowa in that in that sense is that Michigan ties for six in ter- in uh, total turnovers this season they've only given the ball away nine times over the course of the entire season um, and while they've also turned people over fifteen times by their own right so I think as long as Michigan plays to type this is a really good setup for them and. Iowa always has a good offensive line. Linderbaum is, is like a legend. Uh, I think he's like PFF's highest graded center ever, but that he doesn't get to block Aiden Hutchinson. And that that's a problem because Hutchinson, as we've talked about over and over again, is, is a game wrecker. He can be kind of like the, the difference in, in a game in a way. So uh, basically the way I see this one going is a low scoring, you know, to play into type type of big 10 uh, championship game that the kind that you would expect when these two teams are playing. I think that Michigan, you know, pounds Iowa on the ground and stops Iowa's run game. I think they, they get Spencer Petrus or, or Padilla fr- flustered. And I think Michigan wins this one like 24 to 10, but it's like a really loud 24 to 10. It's not going to be easy. It's Michigan, right? Like we, we know for a fact, they're not just going to cruise to like a 30 point win and, and everything's going to be fine. Like they're, they're going to make this difficult on themselves at some point, but I mean, there, there is a giant upswell of optimism all of a sudden, you know, uh, around this Michigan program. Like it, it felt like they were always kind of lurking in the background and obviously have had a good season, but like nobody was talking about this team making the playoff until after the Ohio state win. I like, got, nobody was giving them a shot in that game. It was just assumed all year that they would get to that game and get blown out. And that would be it. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden now it's kind of forced like a, an entire reevaluation. It feels like of this team. It, yeah, really. That, yeah. Like even when uh, they, they released the playoff rankings before the, the last week of the regular season, it, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's a path to the playoff. They just have to beat Ohio State and win the Big Ten. They're not going to do either of those things. And they they knocked down the first leg of that by, by beating Ohio State in, in, you know, really impressive fashion. And now it's it's right there for them. Um, yeah, this is it's almost like at, at the same time, I. I almost wonder if we, as like the public, were, were underestimating the, this Michigan team, uh, especially because of maybe that Michigan State loss. Yeah. But that game is always funky, um, and Michigan State was a good team at least at that point. So I mean, that, that loss is and it was on the road. So I mean, somewhat forgivable, maybe a little bit less forgivable in hindsight. But but them beating Ohio State is a definite statement that they're one of the best teams in, in the country, and I, I expect them to um, to be able to take care of business here against Iowa. All right, so going up against the Big Ten game, uh, we do get the ACC championship game in the night window, Pitt and Wake. Uh, And we will use this as a smooth transition to talk about the DFS slate on DraftKings on Saturday. Kenny Pickett, the highest-priced quarterback on the board. He's at 9,700. You got Sam Hartman on the other side of this game at 9,500. Ritter 
the only other quarterback in the 9,000 range. He's at exactly 9,000 uh, with Cincinnati, of course, going up against Houston. Are you looking to any of those three guys? Are you going a little bit cheaper at quarterback? So, yeah, the DraftKings is definitely daring you to find a way to to stack pit. And but what I mean by that is you got to pay what uh, 19,000 of your, of your $50,000 salary cap to, to stack Kenny Pickett and Jordan Addison. Mm-hmm. So that that's, that's a, you know, a spicy meatball that, that you got to like account for with the, with the rest of the way that, that you build out your lineup. You, you obviously have to to pivot. You have to get some guys maybe under four, four K you, you, you might have to askew going the, the two QB route and, and use a position player in your super flex uh, you might have to go with somebody like a Stetson Bennett um, at, at 7,300 because the quarterback pricing makes it very difficult to find value. Um, I th- it feels like the, the one kind of maybe value guy with, with some upside is Clayton Toon, but Cincinnati's pass defense is so nasty that I do have my concerns about that um, in, in its own right. So um, I do feel like Kenny Pickett and the ACC championship game is kind of like the centerpiece uh, of this uh, Saturday main slate because that game is so high scoring. I mean, we're going to see uh, a total in this one uh, pushing for 70, and I don't think anything else uh, really comes close on Saturday's slate as far as that's concerned. I don't think there's even anything. Oh, well, I guess the, the, the Maction game actually is pretty wild. Um, so you got to keep Dustin Crum in mind, as you always do, of course. Um, oh, but uh, but um, especially that this week. But, you know, I think. Pickett will will just because the the kind of lack of quarterback talent or good matchups, obvious good matchups um, on this slate that Pickett is going to be the chalk for better or for worse. And it's just a, a way of of finding out how to build a lineup around that. And, and I think if you use Pickett, you've got to go with Addison. I, I just think that he eats up so many of those targets and he's so explosive um, that you got to go with him as well. So so, again, you, you really have to hunt value at other spots. I do think it's doable. Um, but if you were to, to fade both Hartman and Pickett, and, and yeah, by virtue of me not talking about Hartman, I'm, I'm not as on him uh, this week as, as I am Pickett. You know, the $200 difference notwithstanding, I, I just think that Pickett um, has the better game in this one. Um, Hartman does have a little bit of that rushing touchdown upside, though. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think if you look down in that under uh, 9K tier, I would consider Bryce Young again, you know, it's tough defense, but you'd never see Bryce Young down this far. And I think the game script sets up for a ton of passing attempts for him. So if he's pushing for 40 plus, um, I think that he's going to be able to to probably return value on on what's kind of a diminished price tag for him. Dustin Crum again, 8,300. Then you're going to have to keep an eye on on Rocky Lombardi on the other side of that uh, Mac championship game. If he starts, then then I like his chances of returning value at seventy five hundred as well. Rocky Lombardi, all time Mac name. Like that, that so just screams good. everything about that screams Mac. Um, let's look at the running backs. Hassan Haskins coming off of that five touchdown game uh, against Ohio State, uh, by far the highest priced back on this slate. He's at eighty seven hundred, and then there's a massive drop off uh, down to guys like Brian Robinson, Jerome Ford, Abram Smith. Um, in like the the high six thousand, low seven thousand. I mean, there's a fifteen hundred dollar gap between Haskins and the next highest priced player. Uh, my question to you: I mean, if you're spending up at quarterback, obviously you're probably not going to roster Haskins. But um, if you're not spending up at quarterback, are are you going to make that leap uh, to a, a player who I assume will be pretty popular on the slate? I'm going to try at least one lineup where where I do skew the the top tier quarterback and, and get a Haskins share. But the, the, some of the 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 issue here with, with Haskins potentially is that Blake Corum is back. Like for the last couple of weeks of the regular season up until last weekend, you, you knew that you could bank on Haskins having like 25 plus carries. Obviously Haskins got fed again last week, but is Michigan going to feel as compelled to, to give him as many carries provided that, that, um, that Corum was able to perform so well on limited carries against Ohio State. So I, I expect like Haskins to push for around 25 carries, but I think that we're going to see Corum, who's down at just 4,300, uh, draw a lot of interest as well. Because if Corum gets uh, double digit targets here, then, then, or I'm sorry, double digit carries, then I do like his chances of returning value as well. And, and again, if you, if you have a, a quarterback heavy lineup build, I think Corum is a nice way of, of helping uh, make that happen for you. 
fading Brian Brian Robinson and and uh, for the record also very much fading Trey Sanders, um, the the Bama backup running back who who would presumably get the start in place of Robinson. I just don't like his chances of getting much going here either. So I'm going pretty cheap at, at running back. Um, the, the highest price running back that I went after in, in my kind of initial build is Al, Alton McCaskill um, of Houston. I think if Houston tries to, you know, you got to choose the lesser of two evils when you're attacking Cincinnati's defense. I think you can have a little bit more success on the ground. So if McCaskill's good to go, which I believe he is, um, he's a freshman that that scored like 15 or 16 touchdowns this year on the ground. Really impressive stuff from him. Uh, I expect him to, to have a nice game there, especially at 6,300. But yeah, running back, generally, I'm going for value. I like James Cook at 5,500. Um, I think that there's there's a non-zero chance that he actually has a bigger impact in this game uh, than Zamir White does. Um, I like Tristan Ebner of Baylor. Um, he he got it going big time last week. If you used him in, in DFS, he, he had a really solid game. He can get it done um, both as a pass catcher and, and as a rusher, kind of a different change of pace guy to Abram Smith, the converted linebacker, who's just more of like a, a straight ahead hammer type of guy. Um, on the Maction side of things, Clint, Ratkovich, uh, that guy just scores a lot of touchdowns uh, is basically the, the main theory behind him. He has 11 touchdowns on the year. So basically he's their goal line guy and they, they go to him without really thinking twice about it. They, they don't really go with Jay Ducker as much. Jay Ducker, 5,600. So he's, you know, reasonably priced. Uh, I think that there's a case to be made for, for him as well. Um, but, but there's a little bit less touchdown upside, but that Ratkovich is risky because he doesn't get that many carries. Greg Bell, 5,200, also interesting. He's not that explosive, but but San Diego State, I think, plays a, a control uh, type of, of game, a lot of possession, and Greg Bell is kind of the main guy for them, and they, they're a little bit banged up at quarterback right now. So I think Bell is going to be a factor at 5,200 if they can get things going um, against Utah State's run defense. So I li- like that a little bit. And I would also keep an eye on, on the App State running backs. Cam Peoples is someone that I like a lot. Um, he's down at, at 4,000, uh, but you have some some other guys in that App State backfield who are seeing some work of late. So uh, I haven't uh, given my final verdict on, on my article as as for which App State guy I'm going I'm to trust in the backfield, but I will have some exposure to it just because I'm going with a more quarterback and, and receiver heavy type of lineup build. So I need to find value at running back. And I think App State presents a decent way, especially with Billy Napier on his way out the door. So that receiver, you mentioned Jordan Addison, who has six touchdowns and almost 300 yards on 25 catches over his last two games. That, that included a 61.2 DraftKings point game uh, <laughs> against Virginia in, in week 12. 14 catches, 202, and four touchdowns in that one. Uh, so, so he's kind of on a tier of his own at 9,300. Uh, you mentioned you know potentially stacking him with Kenny Pickett. You got Jamison Williams, the Ohio State transfer at Alabama. Uh, he's at 8,000, A.T. Perry. At Wake, uh, Devin Topkins, Tay Martin, John Mechie, the list goes on. Um, even Brock Bowers, you know, touchdown machine these last two weeks. He's down at 6,700. Uh, where do you lean at the receiver position? Yeah, there, there's so many ways to go with this one. So I really like uh, how the how the board sets up for that. Um, I think this, specifically as far as like the game theory is concerned, because when you see Jameson Williams that like that high up, um, I feel like that's always a sign for people to just go, oh, I'm going to do John Mechie instead. Like they always just like try to try to save a little bit of coin. But I think that Williams is the more explosive player between himself and Mechie. I think he's the one that, that gives Georgia a little bit more of a matchup problem. So especially if you're considering Bryce Young, I think you have to have Jamison Williams in your lineup really like him. Um, A.T. Perry, he's been amazing this year, kind of ama- uh, emerged as that number one guy in the Wake Forest offense. Um, the DFS heads will, will appreciate the, the tweet I had a few weeks ago where I'm like, A.T. Perry is, is who we thought Scotty Washington was going to be, another like 6'5 Wake receiver from, from a couple years ago. Um, that was back when uh, even – I forget the, the name of the, of the guy that transferred to, to Georgia, the Wake Forest quarterback, but uh, those two had quite a connection many moons ago. Um, but I digress. Uh, Devin Tompkins, uh, he is literally like my size. He is not a large man, but he uh, is near the top of the of the FBS in receiving yards. San Diego State, obviously a tough test. Um, and I just worry that they're going to slow the game down. San Diego State is to the point where 
Utah State's output um, and play volume might might take a bit of a hit here. And and Utah State's other receivers have started to kind of um, ascend as as legitimate weapons um, alongside him. They don't only have to go to Devin Tompkins. So I'm a little bit worried about him this week. Dante Cephas of of uh, Kent State. If you want to go with that Dustin Crum, I think that he's the obvious guy that that you pair with him. Uh, Tr- Trayvon Rudolph, the guy who had the legendary Maxim performance with like 300 receiving yards a few weeks ago, he's down at 7 uh, K or 6,900 against Kent Kent State. Maybe something to consider there. I do like Brock Bowers. I think that he's a leg- he's the best pass catching option that Georgia has uh, as a true freshman tight end, which is just kind of unbelievable. But that that dude is just built different. He's crazy. I really like Jermaine Burton though. If if you're going for for uh, some more uh, Georgia receiving exposure. I still don't think even though Pickens is going to play, I, I still don't think that he's going to see an appreciable amount of snaps um, to, to really make it worth it, even though he's down at min price. So maybe if, if you need the min price guy, go Pickens, but 4,700 for Burton, I think is a really, really nice deal. I think that we're going to see him be as maybe as, as involved as he's been all season because uh, A.D. Mitchell, Kiaris Jackson aren't really getting it done on the outside for the Bulldogs in, in the passing game. So I think this is a big um, Brock Bowers and, and Jermaine Burton type of game. And then uh, Jared Wayne, always like him just because of how banged up the rest of the non-Jordan Addison um, pit receivers are. So I, I would certainly take Jared Wayne into some consideration as well. So I realized I was muted as I was like shouting this into the void. Uh, Jamie Newman, the name Jamie of the quarterback. Newman. Yeah, I was like, why is he not reacting to this? <laughs> Jamie <laughs> I'm, Newman. I'm just that uh, stoic. It, to be fair, it took me a couple seconds too. I was like, like, that was a pretty big deal at the time, and he just completely disappeared into thin air. He, yeah, he he did. A, he got. I think he went undrafted, and then practice squad, and then uh, free agent. So yeah, kind of the same path as Kelly Bryant. Yeah, yeah. At least Bryant played though. <laughs> but yeah, it, I, it was actually pretty good. No, he he seriously was. But um, yeah, he uh. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't wish any ill on, on Jamie Newman, um, but but uh, yeah. either way, had it's to throw just a classic. It is what it is scenario. It it truly is um, what it is. And Nick, if you'll humor me for like two seconds, I'm I'm going to just run through a quick thought on on the Friday slate: um, Western Kentucky, UTSA, and then Oregon, Utah. I think you just have to eat the chalk here. I think you have to go with with. Uh, Frank Harris and Bailey Zapp as, as your quarterback and super flex, especially with Harris being 6,400. Uh, Jareth Stearns has 170 targets this year. You can't fade him on DraftKings, in my opinion. Um, but Western Kentucky has had some ascension from, from guys like Mitchell Tinsley of late um, to also consider, and he's pretty affordable at, at 6K. Um, I think that if you're going running back, my move is to go um, with Sincere McCormick and, and Tavion Thomas. I, I'm not going after Travis Dye as much, despite my, my thoughts at Oregon might find a way to win this one. And then some value receivers, uh, DeCorian Clark of UTSA. He's kind of the main guy or like the, the third guy um, in that, in that past game rotation has started to pop up of late. And, and Chris Hudson of Oregon, 4,300. Um, also a guy to keep an eye on 18 targets over the last two weeks. All right. I love it. That, that, that's a deep dive for anybody playing that Friday slate. Uh, let's make some picks. Let's get out of here, pal. All right. uh, we'll start with Oregon. And Utah, we'll, we'll hit the main slate here uh, on Friday. Utah, minus two and a half in this one. Again, you're going Oregon? I'm going Oregon. So if, I, if I'm putting some some shekels on it, I'm going Oregon money line. Okay. How, yeah, I mean, I shekels is, is not a word that I was prepared to uh, to react to. That is not something I I'm on one today, like, man. Is I'm that, sorry. Is that, old, is that Old Testament or New Testament? <laughs> Maybe it transcended eras. I, I, yeah. I forget what it, what where exactly it came from. Yeah, I don't, I, is that the same as a shilling? I don't. I, I think that's what what Judas was paid to betray Jesus, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think you're right. I think shilling is more like a you know like what Ebenezer Scrooge would like you yeah. know throw down to to the peasants on the street and mm-hmm. you know. Like, ah, ah, ah. All right, so we're going Oregon <laughs> over Utah, Baylor, Oklahoma State. I, I'm sticking with Oklahoma State here, and, and I'm gonna. I think it's a competitive game, but I think Oklahoma State covers the five and a half. I think so too. I I, I just don't think that Baylor is going to be able to score enough to, to stay inside this number. Okay. Georgia, Alabama. You may have heard of these teams. They play in the SEC. Georgia, six and a half point favorites. We're both picking the dogs. I'm going to put that out there. Are we taking the dogs to cover the six and a half? Final score prediction, Georgia 27, 
Alabama 17. Okay. Georgia yeah, you covers. can find somewhere where you can you could submit a perfect, you know, final score bet by all means. There it is. But even even if you can't, you still you still know my my lean on that one it's Georgia in the under. Okay. Okay. I like it a lot. That's Georgia uh with the points uh minus six and a half again. Uh technically the the road team according to how this is listed. Uh Houston Cincinnati. Cincinnati again, ten and a half point favorites here. It's tricky because I do respect Houston a lot, but I think this is Cincinnati's moment. I think they cover. I think Cincinnati wins. I think they make it more difficult than it needs to be. It is a massive moment. I mean, this is the, the most pressure that they're going to have in any game this season, including the Notre Dame game. I, I, I think you know we've seen them look a little iffy. They've they've looked um, you know, they've looked a little more dominant. I think more like the team we hope to see these last few weeks, uh, beating down some lesser opponents, but. I mean, like you said, Houston's won 11 in a row. This is a good team. This is an 11-1 and one, uh, Houston Cougars outfit. I, I think Cincinnati wins the game. I, I don't think they win it uh, by at least 11 points. So I, I think we get something like a like 31-26 type of game. Okay, I like that. I, I think either way, we're in for an exciting, uh, uh, very entertaining game. But um, I think that it totally makes sense to, to go with Houston with that many points. But um, th- this would be a, a bet suggesting that, that Cincinnati play- plays its best game to 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 kind of make its last case mm-hmm. uh, to the committee. I think that's the most fun scenario. Like Cincinnati winning in a romp and and you know really kind of building some momentum going into the playoff would be fun. But I, I just you know I, I think I don't think the talent gap is that huge between these teams, and I think there is a ton of pressure on Cincinnati to True. win this game, and I think that gets to them early on. All right, in the Big Ten, Michigan, Iowa, Michigan, eleven point favorites against the Hawkeyes. <sighs> It's that's a tight one um, again, and, and it's not a lot of scoring that's going to be had in this one. You know, an implied uh, over under here of, of 43 and a half. I'll still go Michigan, though. I, I just think that the de- defense kind of similar to, to the OK State Baylor, but in a, in a different way. Um, defense kind of carries Michigan, mm-hmm. keeps Iowa off the scoreboard enough to, to where, you know, it's a, it's a uh, it's like a 13 point victory for Michigan. Yeah, I know I said I don't think it's going to be easy for Michigan, but I still think the final score is going to reflect a somewhat comfortable win. I, I will take Michigan to cover as well. I, I think we we maybe get a close game early on. Uh, and like you said, I just trust this Michigan defense. I, I don't know that the Michigan offense is going to run rampant all over Iowa, but I, I'm really confident that the Michigan defense is going to be able to shut down what the Hawkeyes are bringing on their end. Yeah, I mean, Iowa got completely bailed out by by Nebraska, just Nebraskaing the uh, last week. I, I don't think that they get that that same sort of uh, lifeline this time around against Michigan. All right, Pitt Wake Forest. What do we got here? We got Pitt. I think Pitt, three point Pitt wins this one convincingly. Okay. I, I I don't. I I've been burned by by fading Wake Forest many a time this year, uh, but I got to stay true to my brand. But but no, it. it Objectively, I do think that Pitt is the better team. I think they win this one by closer uh, to a touchdown. All right, we're doing a bonus pick heading into the weekend. Jacksonville Jaguars, 13-point dogs on the road at the L.A. Rams. I'm taking the points. I'm taking the All points. Right, correct. I, I, the, Ram, the Rams are uh, Rams have just found a way to, to like completely erode all of the public faith uh, that they built up in September. I'm with you on that. I can't believe I'm back in the Jags here. I think there's there's definitely the potential for like a massive correction here. And it's like Rams 48, Jags 3. Like that is in the cards. That's always in the cards. Of course. When the Jags are playing. But the Rams were also like two 50 plus yard bombs away from getting completely housed at Lambeau on Sunday. See, exactly. So, so yeah, this is this Rams team that. They- they're in a weird kind of identity crisis spot right now. And I think that the Jags can just, you know, they don't have to keep it that close to, to cover yeah, the spread. They've got to play their so game. They play their game, play Jags football. And exactly. then uh, w- one last little, little thing I'll, I'll leave you with since we're talking our, our own uh, teams that we like uh, there, there's an establishment up the street for me that, that I go to for trivia on Thursday nights. I love the place, but it is also, an Alabama and Steelers bar. And no. we have Georgia playing the, the, the Georgia playing Bama this weekend and the Ravens playing the Steelers on Sunday afternoon. So I might like stumble in there Sunday night and, and not make it out alive. You, you definitely can't go there tonight. Do not like that. That would be just a horrible voodoo type of situation. I don't think you can step foot in there tonight. We think so. All right. I, I, I might I have to change I mean, my plans. It's, it's just, it's, a little too coincidental, right? That that Baltimore's playing Pittsburgh and Georgia has Bama. If it was one or the other, you know, I think you could pull it off. It's just too risky. 
it's okay. Now, now I got some, now I got some doubts about my plans for, for the Thursday evening. I think I, I certainly appreciate um, your, your advice uh, as my advisor on this type of thing, especially when it comes to vibes. So yep. I'm in a tough pickle here. Yeah. You know, think about it, take some time, but just consider the implications of, of what could happen. You know, if things go awry this weekend, <laughs> uh, I will, I will be watching the Milwaukee Bucks play the Toronto Raptors in, in a little bit here. Uh, you have some more prep to do for the weekend. Obviously a lot going on still in the college football world. Jonathan, enjoyed breaking it down with you. As always, we will be back for the recap on Monday. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.